Hello, hello. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for the ghosts. But for the ghosts, indeed. I'm running out of voices to do that in, honestly. I'm trying to think of new ones, and it's, you know, it's just not happening. Do you do you need a new voice every time? It feels like, you know, we, we wouldn't want we wouldn't want our tagline to feel samey, would we? <laughs> <laughs> if, if we're one thing, it's not stale. <laughs> Speaking of not being stale, um, I have some fun news that I didn't even, I even tell you, Christina. Oh. Oh, interesting. Okay. Party wants to take my headphones off because you're going to make a sound. Okay, I'm ready. Looking at the old analytics of the pod. Yes. This week, our little podcast hit 20,000 listens. <laughs> 20,000 streams over the course That's of these two Yeah. Crazy. I know. Look, I know there's a lot of podcasts in the world. And you probably, in season one, you're up to like 150,000 uh, 150, streams. Right. But for our little pod. We're so happy. Twenty thousand yeah, is that's re- crazy. Is really nice, and so I'll turn myself down a little bit. <laughs> it's so loud. Um, so yeah, so we're just so grateful to everyone who's been on this journey with us for twenty thousand listens, and uh, it's faster. It, it we got to twenty thousand faster than we got to ten thousand, which is you know really really solid stuff, yeah. and uh, a lot of that is in part to just all of y'all just listening and and doing the thing that you do. And so we're so gr- grateful. Thanks for listening. That's crazy. That's weird. Yeah. We're not people. <laughs> I think we are people. I mean, we're, but we're just like we're normal not, people. We're, we're not, not like people. We're not people. We don't, we don't know people. Like We don't know people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's exciting stuff here on the pod. And this that. is old information now because, you know, by the time you're hearing this, it's more than that. But Who knows? Know. Maybe we'll have 40,000. No, we won't. <laughs> Help us get to 40,000 by the end of the season. We know there's only two if months we get left. to 40,000 by the end of the season, we'll... I don't know, fill in the blank. Oh, I don't know. I have nothing creative to, to offer that. Mm. That We'll eat a lot of pickles. I will happily eat a lot of Ooh, pickles. We just had some, we, oh, we, we just God, had some we pickles had today. Pickle. Shout out to Simply Nova uh, in Williamsburg, man. They are, if you want excellent. a good full sour pickle, mm-hmm. you head on over. This is what should be, we should be doing on the New York Mystery Machine, we right? Should. Always shouting out a New York business, yeah. <laughs> a local business. <laughs> Who doesn't have any idea. <laughs> Who has no idea that they're getting shouted out on this this podcast about burgers <laughs> and aliens and shit. Oh my god! But it is a really good pickle. It's a good pickle. The full sour. The full sour. Don't wimp out and get a half sour. No. It's a bad decision. And if you're a bread and butter person, what are you doing? With I don't your even life? understand what your choices are in life. Look at your life. Look at your choices. It's either full sour or or or, or dill. Yes, both are acceptable. Both are acceptable. <laughs> this has been our PSA about pickles. <laughs> Oh boy, um, we're so excited! Thanks for everyone who was uh, jumping on our Patreon these last few months. We have we, we mentioned last week all of our uh, incredible supporters. Um, thank you for everyone who's continuing to do that. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, helping the podcast out in a very special way, you head on over to Patreon.com/slash/NYMysteryMachine for as little as three dollars a month. You join our community for as little as five. You get a bonus episode. There's a brand new patron exclusive out right now. It's a rare Christina Marinelli ghost story. Oh. It's rare. It's very rare. Christina do not dip into doesn't dip into often. the ghost, and so it is up on the Patreon. Which is funny because the first episode that I recorded with you was technically about ghosts, even though we scrapped it immediately because <laughs> it was bad. And then we did it again. And we did it again. It was and that's fine. called the Richards Museum. <laughs> now the, that version of it was recorded twice. Yep. 
Um, and uh, speaking of Patreon, you can also, there's also some fun things as you go up all the levels. Uh, and one of those things is uh, when you get to the $25 level or above, you get to vote on an episode. And next week is going to be our second episode. Uh, patron Ooh. voted on episode so uh that's voted voted by our patrons so uh yeah if you want some voting power to choose the things that we talk about you head over to the patreon nice well christina where are we today we are in brighton new york brighton beach no that's what i thought at first but no we're in brighton upstate new york which oh. is a town just on the southern edge of rochester and rochester because i have no geographic sense of anything do, um, do, do any up. of us really that's fair um rochester is itself about a five and a half hour drive from new york city and it's all i think like ontario sure, sure, sure. So that should orient you a little bit maybe by ontario canada by on lake ontario is on oh by lake ontario, lake ontario. which yeah. is half canadian half canadian <laughs> like many people i assume in the world yeah. that lake has dual citizenship <laughs> um so one morning in Brighton, uh, near Rochester, New York, um, Jim Krausenek arrived home from work and entered his house, only to find his wife, Kathleen, was dead. She was still in bed with an axe in her head. Oh, my God, Kathleen. Yeah. Take the axe out before you go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, that just can't be a comfortable sleep. Uh, Have we gotten to the point where we just like are a little too macabre? Um, I don't know what 20,000 listens the, the listeners can decide take the axe out before you go to sleep that's your PSA of the day pickles and axes pickles and axes um, they're it gets worse though because their young daughter who was three and a half years old at the time was alive and safe so not that kind of bad but she had spent the day alone with her murdered mother just in the other room oh no so we're going to back up. Let's back um, up. And first I'd like to acknowledge that, yes, this is, I believe you said, our fourth murder in a row. Yeah, this is, this is the completion of what we are now referring to forever in our podcast yeah. as Murder Month. Murder Month. Um, Welcome to is, April. This is the first time, April 2023, mark in our calendars, this has been Murder Month here at the New York <laughs> Mystery Machine. We've had four murders in a row. We're so sorry. Next week will not be murders, but there'll be some murder in it. So sorry. So still kind of murder. <laughs> but it's at the basis of it. It's on the basis of it. It's on the basis of it. <laughs> Um, so we're going to back up and talk about exactly who our major players are today. So James or Jim F. Krausenick Jr. and Kathleen or Kathy Schlosser were from Mount Clemens, Michigan, where uh, Jim's father ran a carpet business and Kathy's father drove a truck. Kathy was described as, quote, effervescent, energetic, and fully engaged by friends and family. Um, the two attended the same high school and then ended up both attending Western Michigan University. The pair, although they knew each other since high school, really only started dating in college. Uh, Jim graduated before Kathy and moved on to grad school at the university. Um, by 1973, they were engaged with announcements running in the Detroit Free Press and other papers that read, Mr. and Mrs. Robert E. Schlosser of Mount Clemens announced the engagement of their daughter, Kathleen Rose, which is a really nice name, to James F. Krausenek Jr., son of Mr. and Mrs. James F. Krausenek of St. Clair. Miss Schlosser is attending Western Michigan University. Her fiancé was graduated from WMU and is presently attending graduate school there. They planned a spring wedding. Kathy and Jim married on May 3rd, 1974 at St. Thecla Catholic Church uh, in Mount St. Clemens. Note to all the people following Catholic things out there, St. Thecla, often forgotten saint. Um, and soon after they moved to Colorado. 
I just you never see a Saint Thecla anything. I think there's a reason for that. I mean, she was a cool one. She was an early one, if I'm not mistaken. What did she do? I'm pretty. If I'm not mistaken, I think Saint Thecla. And you can check me on this. Pull it up, Adam. Let's check me on the facts. Here. I don't even want to spell it. T H E C L A, just like it sounds. Gosh, uh, <laughs> I think Saint Thecla was um, uh, very early martyr, mid Eastern, and I want to say that she had some sort of eye surgery or something. Um, at like a, a like at a time w- which why that sticks out is because this is at a time when like you know eye surgery is horrifying. Thecla was a saint of the early Christian Church and reported follower of Paul the Apostle. The earliest record of our life comes from the ancient uh, apocry- apocryphal acts of Paul and Thecla. Did she have eye surgery? In the text, it said Thecla spent three days sitting by her window listening to Paul speak about the Christian God and the importance of living in chastity. Thecla's mother, Theoclesia, and fiancé, Thamiris, became concerned that Thecla was going to follow Paul's teaching. They turned to local authorities to punish Paul for being a Christian and making virgins averse to marriage. Paul was sent to prison, where Thecla visited him, kissing his bonds, and refused to leave him and returned to her mother and fiancé. Paul was made to leave the city, and Thecla was condemned to be burned. Nothing but eye surgery. Who was the eye surgery saint? Lucy? No, she she had eye issues. Thecla was miraculously saved from the burning of the stake by the onslaught of a storm and then encountered Paul outside I- Iconium, where she told him, I will cut my hair and I shall follow thee wherever you go. Then traveled with Paul to Antioch of Pisidia. There, a nobleman named Alexander desired Thecla and attempted to rape her. Thecla fought him off, tore his cloak, and knocked his coronet off his head, which caused her to be put on trial for assault. She was sentenced to be eaten by beasts, but once again saved by a series of miracles. In one scene, female beasts, particularly lionesses, protected her against her male aggressors. While in the arena, she baptized herself by throwing herself into a nearby lake full of aggressive seals who were all killed by lightning before they can die. What? What is happening? (laughs) Aggressive seals and a lake inside like the arena okay well i must be confusing i think she like died of normal causes apparently <laughs> <laughs> i really thought she was the because lucy has an eye issues i eye issues but um i thought that also had like some maybe there's another early saint anyway i knew she was an early saint and mid-eastern which i think i was correct about but i don't remember now because so many other things happened in that story anyway they got married to saint thecla's catholic <laughs> um and uh soon moved to colorado uh, Do you guys like these random deep dives we take? <laughs> They're still cool, right? <laughs> right? They're not stale yet either, right? <laughs> um, so Jim um, kind of completed his studies at Colorado State University. Apparently, he didn't finish his PhD, but that's something that he um, doesn't disclose and will use the idea that he almost finished his PhD um, to get jobs. Um, and Kathy worked there as an orthopedic therapist. And in April 1978, so about four years after they married, Jim and Kathy had a baby girl whom they named Sarah. And soon after, they moved in 1979 to Lynchburg, Virginia, for a, a teaching job at Lynchburg College. Jim was teaching economics. They stayed there until 1981, at which point Jim got a new job as an economist for Eastman Kodak. Um, I had no idea private companies had economists, but here we are. Um, and that's when they moved to Rochester, New York. Or rather to Brighton, the upscale suburb, right? I checked out their house at 33 Del Rio Drive on Google Maps. And that's because you guys are moving. <laughs> checked out their house. I was like, I might as well just check it out and see what's going on there. 
Um, <laughs> and um, I, it doesn't seem to have like been changed over time. So if you if you look it up, it's really cu- it's really cute. It's a cute little house. It's cute. It's too bad someone has murdered in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really. Um, it's got like this white siding and like has some stone. That could be its own blog, the cute murder house. It's like, this is a terrible, terrible site. But the fucking paneling is just adorable. There's a defector (laughs) column every so often that's like, just like her deep dives into Zillow and like things that look normal and then devolve into like jail dungeon chamber things. It's terrific. Highly recommend. It's our next TikTok project. Cute houses (laughs) with with terrible, terrible murders inside. Um... I'll also say that just for additional context about what kind of area this is, I hear suburb sometimes, and maybe this is because I'm a city girl, but I hear suburb and sometimes I think like quasi-rural or sometimes I think kind of almost like outer borough, like it really wildly depends. This is much more the latter, right? So like you can walk to a neighbor's front door in like a minute flat, um, but there's plenty of property around you and they probably can't hear you singing (laughs) at like 4 p.m. Um. So friends said that the move was really tough for Cappy. Um, she missed her family. She kind of wanted to return to Michigan. But overall, the crowds and ex seemed pretty happy. They went for walks together, took Sarah on her bicycle, played tennis, racquetball, all that kind of thing. And they were there about six months, uh, which brings us to February 1982. On February 18th, Jim and Kathy ran some errands. They had dinner, drank some wine, and went to sleep by midnight. February 19th, 1982. It was a somewhat cool day. It peaked at like 53 degrees. According to Jim, he left the house at his usual time, 6.30 a.m., which would have been just about or just before the sun came up. Kathy was still asleep in bed. Jim spent the day at work, and he didn't return until about 4.50, which I'm guessing is also sort of the usual time. When he did return, when he pulled up, he noticed the garage door was open, and as he approached the front door, he saw broken glass on the floor and a mall, which is like a giant axe, um, leaning against the house. He went in, went upstairs to the second floor to the master bedroom, and that's when he found Kathy still in bed, an axe with a two and a half foot long handle still lodged in her head. Sarah, their daughter, had fallen asleep at some point nearby, although she had clearly dressed herself that day. Apparently she had like put on like three or four sweaters or something. So Jim immediately scoops up Sarah. He gets the hell out of there. Um, and he runs to one of those neighbors and says, you need to call 911. That's a good dad. He's like, get this kid out get of the this, house. We are out. The neighbor described Jim on the phone to 911 as, uh, the husband's here and he can't even talk. Apparently, you know, he was just understandably yeah. shaking, like freaking <laughs> the hell out. Understandably. Uh, the dispatcher um, sent first responders pretty quickly, including um, Brighton Police, Lieutenant Bill Flood. Um, they rove. They rove. That's not a word. That's not a word. They arrived by... About 5.03 p.m. So it's really been just like, that's pretty quick turnaround. I don't know. Um, and when when Lieutenant Bill Flood arrived, he found Jim absolutely sobbing and Sarah seemed understandably traumatized. Sarah, in essence, was the only potential witness to the crime. Initial reports quoted the police chief, Gene Shaw, saying, quote, She's aware something occurred, but you're talking about a three-and-a-half-year-old girl here. She didn't recognize the victim as even being her mother. Police would later say that they spoke only briefly with Sarah that day. Quote, what conversation we had with her was always very limited. That was not even a questioning. We were not alone. It was in a neighbor's house. There were other people around. And we just had a casual conversation with her to see how she reacted. Unquote. This is, as far as I can tell, likely when the one statement I've seen from Sarah um, in contemporaneous uh, articles um, 
that goes something like this. Apparently, she said she had seen, quote, a bad man sleeping in mommy and daddy's bed with an axe in his head, which is, of course, a description of Kathy herself. Um, the officers asked if the man was black or white, and she said he was, quote, many colors, unquote. And again, here the officers are thinking, Sarah was thinking of Kathy in bed surrounded by blood, right? So Many colors? Yeah. So I guess that would be like comforter blood, and like she's just in her traumatized three-year-old mind conflating things. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, so within, you know, that's that's the day of the murder, right? About 24 hours later, Jim and Sarah go to Michigan ostensibly in part to bury uh kathy but this was abrupt this was an abrupt leaving the police were notified but you know they go okay all right whatever um they go they bury kathy um and though they were expected to return to rochester immediately jim and sarah stayed in michigan with family for quite some time after and meanwhile the police were still waiting to talk directly with sarah right about what she saw because again until that point it wasn't really a formal statement and any statements they were getting were either that first day right with a ton of people swirling around yeah. or it was statements that were being funneled through family so they're not getting it directly from from sarah on march 7th 1982 the democrat and chronicle which is the local rochester newspaper ran the following adam would you kindly read the italicized bits we mentioned the Democrat Chronicle last week on my episode. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they show up. I feel like they've shown up a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, they reported a bunch on that Kristen O'Connell murder. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. Police Chief Shaw said James Krasinek Jr. has refused to allow police to talk to his daughter since the day of the slaying. Sarah was home all day while her mother lay in bed and her father was wor- working. A police or police-sponsored interview with the girl quote, has been proposed and it's being considered. Michael Wolfer, the lawyer for James Krasinek, said, quote, I don't think anyone has given a flat no. Shaw said Brighton police had approached Krasinek, his father, and Walford about having police officer or a child psychologist speak with the girl alone. Quote, she may have some important information for us, Shaw said. There are many questions we like to ask her. Brian police offered to pay all expenses to fly a child psychologist to Michigan to interview the girl alone without her family present under controlled circumstances, Shaw said. Krusenek and his father told investigators they did not want Sarah interviewed. Quote, no reason was given, Shaw said. They said that Sarah would probably say things on her own and they would then tell us. Shaw said, we have quotations from the family. But she has not been spoken to by anyone representing the department. So, yeah, the family is sort of um, blocking that kind of conversation, which on the one hand, it's, I super it's tricky. Get. It's so tricky. It's so tricky. Yeah. I don't know. I think the solution they proposed is actually probably the best having a child psychologist yes. do it. Not a police officer. No. Like someone who knows how to understand speaking to mm-hmm. children. I think that is a best solution. And so what makes me a little cautious is saying no to that. Yes, I agree. Like that gives me pause because I can get like, no, 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 you're, you're, you're a police officer. You're not talking to my what, a, three and a three, half, three and a half year old daughter. Like you're not talking to yeah. my daughter, but like having a child psychologist do it, like understanding like the parameters and how to, a, how to speak children to begin with and be understanding the, the sensitivity of it all yeah. so the fact that they didn't want that and also like I mean a child psychologist is it, I mean, your, your kid's gonna need one anyway I was gonna say it sounds like you should just have a child psychologist anyway you're gonna, right? you're gonna like, need one anyway might as well get some information in the first yeah. part of the process so that gives me a pause yeah um, I am paused 
so by the end of March, there was still no sign of being allowed to talk to Sarah. Police began to feel at a certain point it wasn't even going to be worth it, right? They didn't want to re-traumatize her. And she's three and a half, three and a half years old, right? Like, with the, who, who I don't understand, but, like, who knows? Maybe the memory, you know, what is three and a half year old going to be able to tell you after, like, months? That's fair. Right? They did, however, consult some psychics. And I bring this up really just to share my favorite quote about this kind of practice ever, um, which is that when discussing the use of psychics with the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, police... Uh, Chief Shaw said, quote, I know there are some people who don't believe in this, but there are also people who don't believe in God or Christ, unquote, which just is sort of a, (laughs) isn't that just like a a ridiculous statement? (laughs) I know some people don't believe in psychics for their police work, but yeah, some people also don't believe in God. So, there. I'm like, what the hell? Um, Anyway, July of 1982, the house in Del Rio Drive was up for sale. Um, Apparently, there were some interviews with like, you know, prospective buyers and they're like yeah we'll probably be able to forget there was an axe murder in the house i'm like oh okay good on you i couldn't do that (laughs) it's fine no one's gonna remember an axe murder in the house who remembers well apparently in so in that article as like this guy standing out front talking to the journalist and like looking at the house some kids on the bicycle pass by like sing-songing axe murder axe murder and he was like is that what we're gonna have to deal with oh god um by this point, also, the Brighton police had spent over $10,000 on the case and interviewed 300 to 400 people with no luck. We do have speculation about what we think happened, Shaw said. We have some unanswered questions, but we have some legal restrictions on what we can do. He also noted that, quote, we have to develop background to find out why anybody would want to kill this woman. And we were not able to develop anything that would indicate anybody had a dislike for her, unquote. A year later, in February 1983, Democrat and Chronicle again talked to Jim about that night. Jim, who by then had left his Kodak job, job and was working for his father's business in Michigan, he actually never really returned to Rochester after that initial leaving of the place, which mm. I kind of understand. Yeah. Um, but like he went back once to like get stuff for him and Sarah and like booked it. Um, apparently, when talking to the journalist, though, he you know he was tearing up and trembling. Um, he had not spoken to police officers, let alone reporters, since March of the previous year when he'd hired his lawyer. And he's quoted as saying, I understand police have their jobs to do. I appreciate that. But it's too difficult for me to talk about. I just want to put it all behind me now. I'd really rather not discuss it. It's hard enough for me to deal with. I don't want, I don't see how other people would want to hear about it. Which also sort of funny that we're talking about this on a podcast, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) It's been my decision, my policy not to talk. I'd really rather stick to my policy, unquote. So if you're asking why the police just didn't subpoena Jim, it's because they didn't want to risk giving him immunity. And in New York State, subpoenaing someone to testify in a grand jury hearing does give them immunity from prosecution unless they waive that right. Mm. Um, so that's that's all of like the circumstances. But like, what what about physical evidence, you ask? What about physical evidence? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> so an autopsy determined that Kathy was killed instantly by a single blow of the axe and that the time of death was somewhere between 2.30 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Other estimates put it between 11 p.m. on Thursday and 3.30 p.m. on Friday. So it's a pretty big window of time. Um, Kathy had an empty stomach and no alcohol in her bloodstream at the time of her death. Uh, And there was no evidence of sexual assault. Uh, Most likely, they said, is that she was asleep when this happened. Sure. And just never knew it was coming. There were also some signs of burglary in the house. So you remember we said the garage door was open. Mm-hmm. Apparently the murder weapon and the mall were uh, that were found near the entranceway and, you know, in Kathy's head um, were the Krausenek's own tools and the axe used in the murder was kept in the garage normally. The rear porch door was broken from the outside and there were some things strewn about 
the house. So a silverware serving set on the dining room floor, um, uh, some some silverware as well. And I'm going to show you a picture, Adam. Can you describe the picture for us? Um, there's like a silverware platter, like a little tea set, mm-hmm. a kettle, a candelabra mm-hmm. with blue candles, a trash bag, mm-hmm. um, a little platter with salt and pepper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Anything like, seem odd to you? It's on the floor. Okay. Um, How would you describe its state? Oh, like perfectly set. Yeah. Like nothing looks like it's fallen. Yeah. The only thing that looks like it's fallen is the candelabra. Yeah. But everything on the platter is totally upright, placed down. Yes. Yeah. And that's weird, right? Even the candles are kind of in the candelabra still. Yeah. Everything's like, yeah. The only thing knocked down is the candelabra, but like the candles are very much inside the candelabra, tucked in. Just tucked right in there. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is weird, right? So these items that are soon about look more carefully placed than anything. Um, the plastic bag did have a partial shoe print as though someone had stepped on the bag to hold it open. Now, apparently the shoe print is from a boat shoe, and Jim did have boat shoes in the bedroom. Boat shoes, the police argued, um, would have been inappropriate for the weather for someone to be walking around in, but the shoes were never tested. And nothing was really missing. Right? So with the signs of a burglary, but nothing in the end is missing. So Kathy's purse was opened and rifled through and contents emptied. Nothing missing there. Money and jewelry was left out on bureaus and tables. Untaken despite being in obvious places. So while burglary could have been a possible motive, it does seem unlikely. Um, And, you know, Brighton doesn't see many murders. Um, But burglary, that's something that the police say that they're quite familiar with and that this didn't seem like an actual burglary to them. Uh, There was also in the garage uh, a bit of carpet that police found, and they believe it's from the first floor bathroom that was washed and left on a stroller in the garage to hang dry. But lab analysis yielded nothing. A search of the couple's car yielded a pamphlet for marriage counseling, and apparently Kodak had become aware recently that Jim didn't actually have a PhD in economics like he claimed to get, you know, in order to get the job, but that's like the only dirt, quote unquote, they could find on anyone. Um, And there were also no useful fingerprints. And DNA in 1982 wasn't really a thing. Um, So fingerprints would have been the best evidence at that point. And when I say that there were no useful fingerprints, uh, and now admittedly this comes from a later reporting in 1997, but it suggests that there weren't even the Krausenek's own fingerprints around the house. So it was like a pretty sterile crime scene. So there were some occasional articles from then on, couple in 1985, when the Brighton police tried again to get information from the surviving family and follow up on some, some leads again in 1991. In that article, we learned that Jim remarried in 1986, but divorced after nine months. And eventually he would marry uh, a woman named Sharon, who was an old friend that Jim ran into when living in Seattle with Sarah. And it's to Sharon that he is still married. And that's where the case was left for almost 40 years until 2016. 2016? 2016. Oh, boy. But more on that after the break. Oh, boy. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. 
head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. Adam. We're back. We're back. What do you think? I mean, husband sounds real suspicious. Husband sounds real suspicious. Why is it always the husband? God, <laughs> I really I want something unique out of these sometimes. I'm sorry. But it's like, I don't know, like it's it's it the whole thing's really odd. Um the placement of that stuff is you know, placed down to really show that there's no struggle to show mm-hmm. that there was a struggle. Right. But I don't no, even I feel like that's even like way overthought because you're clearly an axe to the head. This doesn't need to show any sort right. of like struggle, and the husband didn't claim to be home during it, so I don't understand why that stuff was said about the way it was. That mm-hmm. is foreign to me; makes no sense. Um, not wanting his daughter to talk starts off very innocent, mm-hmm. and then soon becomes a lot more suspicious. Agreed. And that's really does it for me. I'm like, mm, at one point, your daughter needs to talk to somebody. Yeah. In general, like in life. Right. You should definitely be seeking counseling for this poor girl. So. Yeah. So you're not alone. Jim was naturally, since almost day one, uh, the chief suspect. Again, unfortunately, things like this are very often um, the product of, of domestic violence. Someone who is known to the woman or to the family. And what year is this again? 82. 82. Um, but again, the the lack of evidence, right, sort of meant that they couldn't really go anywhere with this. Um, so in 2015, the Brighton police and the FBI decided to start anew with the, the investigation. And part of that investigation included reexamining evidence for any DNA traces. To my knowledge, they didn't really get lucky with that. Which is, geez, like, same thing. It was two weeks in a row we're rocking an 80s case. Like, the same thing happened with Kristen O'Connell, Oh, yeah, right? you're right. That was Where it's like, too. why are we not, like... Technology's decent enough in the eighties now that we're not getting any sort of. I guess I don't. I don't know when was the the human genome like cracked. Does that have something to do with it? Like I don't know. We always ask our listeners who are smarter than us to tell these these things, and they just don't. They just don't. Stop withholding knowledge, lawyers listeners. and scientists. We've called upon you, lawyers and scientists, over and over again. Hold on, this is a loud thing. I wonder Lawyers if I hunt and- someone down and murder them. Remember that from outside the window? What? Remember that guy outside the window earlier was like, I'm going to hunt him down and murder him. Yeah, I usually cut this stuff out, but you guys, literally, we right right before I clicked record, some guy outside the studio window screamed the words, I'm going to hunt him down and murder him. And I was like, can ooh, you talk ooh. to us for one moment? Can you come in? <laughs> Got a second. It, it's a unique angle to know, like to talk to the, to the murderer before the murder happens. Right. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I I don't know when DNA matching really became viable. It it seems like it wasn't 1982, but what's frustrating is that they did re-examine the evidence in this case, and there was still no DNA evidence that could really point to someone. Um, But the the re-examination did lead detectives to believe the only person possible to have done this crime was, was Jim. The detectives surprised Jim and Sharon at their house one morning. Jim invited the police in allow them to record the conversation and it lasted for over an hour. They said that they thought they knew who killed Kathy and needed his help. And then they began asking, did you have anything to do with this? 
to which Jim said, I didn't kill Kathy. The officer replied, I disagree. I think you did. Mm. And what was this in 2016? Yeah. He's like knocking on the door. He goes, you know what? Just one morning when like apparently like Jim and his third wife Sharon were like sleeping in, having a low key And this cop was like, I am tired of this shit. Mm -hmm. You murdered her and I'm tired of pretending you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Ballsy. The officers told 48 Hours that Jim seemed frightened at that point. And when that was pointed out to them by the interviewer, um, that of course, of course, it's a frightening thing to have the cops accuse you of murder. The officers responded, frightening if you did it. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> it's frightening as hell if you didn't do it. Frightening if you did it. You know, I would be, I haven't murdered anyone. And I would be out of my mind if a cop came to my house and said, I think you murdered someone. Um, anyway, so this conversation was the first time Sharon, the third wife, um, had ever heard the accusation or suspicion that Jim might have been involved. Apparently, she had never asked and had never gotten many details because Jim would always get super emotional talking about it. Detectives pressed on. They were hoping for a final piece of evidence to merge that linked Jim properly. Like I said, there was no DNA to, the, uh, you know, to tie Jim to the crime, but there was also no DNA to tie anyone else. One of the investigators said that this was the damning link for them. Quote, the absence of DNA evidence of someone else within that home, unquote. The other bit of evidence that they could push would be the time of death. And they really needed a way to close in that, that death range time, right? Or time range, rather. Prosecutors turned to Dr. Michael Bodden. Um, now, Dr. Michael Bodden uh, worked with various high-profile cases. The assassination of JFK. He testified about the single bullet. Um the Epstein cases more recently, and he's a bit controversial. So he went over the 1982 file and determined that Kathy died at about 3.30 a.m., which is hours before Jim says he went to work. But the problem is most prosecutors, including many prosecutors who have gone over the original reports, the same ones that Dr. Bodden is using, mm -hmm. have been unable to close the window to a, a more precise time than those large windows I gave earlier. So... It's sort of a weird thing for this one prosecutor, um, yeah, prosecutorial witness to be like, nope, definitely 3.30 a.m. Yeah. Um, and the prosecutors even admit that they wouldn't have hired Baden had he not been able to offer that type of opinion. So, you know. The prosecutors went to a grand jury, indicted him, indicted Jim in 2019. And soon after, Jim voluntarily surrendered to authorities. Now, Jim's attorneys, including Wilford, which is the original attorney that we heard from earlier in the episode, insists that there is another plausible solution. Ed Larrabee, a serial predator, lived minutes away from the Krausenex in 1982. Ed Larrabee had a long record for sexual offenses. Now, he died in prison in 2014, but he'd been in prison on and off for 32 years for a litany of charges, including attempted murder, robbery, and rape. He was frequently paroled and then would sort of commit the, the offenses all over. In 1991, he murdered a woman in Rochester while on parole for the robbery conviction, and her remains were found later that year. She was strangled. Now, Larrabee admitted while in prison that, yes, he had murdered her. He confessed in part because he was dying of ALS, and he was trying to negotiate numerous things, you know, f favorite meals, um, you know, uh, being buried off prison grounds. And then he started confessing to other things. Because he had learned that, you know, you get you get stuff in exchange for this. Hmm. Um, and he eventually listed Kathy Krausenek as one of the murders he committed. Oh, shit. Now, he would have been out of prison at the time of Kathy's murder. And again, like I said, living really nearby. 
And while the police went to question him in the initial investigation in the 1980s, Larrabee wouldn't talk and the police had just sort of moved on. The current investigative team don't believe that Larrabee was involved, however. Apparently, they said the confession didn't match up to the facts. He described Kathy as um, dark-haired, even though she was blonde. He described her as being heavyset when she was not. And then there's also the issue of M.O. He was a serial rapist. He wasn't, to our knowledge, a serial murderer. That was a one-case thing. So in 2022, Jim Krausnick went to trial. The crux of the prosecution's argument was that Jim was at home at the time Kathy was killed, that she was killed in her sleep um, at 3.30 a.m., according to their expert witness. The defense's expert witness insists that the actual time of death cannot be pinpointed and was perhaps between 5 a.m. and 1 p.m. The jury deliberated 10 hours, reaching a verdict of guilty of the charge of second-degree murder. The defense insists that there was an assumption of guilt because he is the husband. Again, that being a very common thing. Sure. Um, the jurors said that the time of death wasn't as important to them in the end as the lack of physical evidence pointing elsewhere and the nature of the scene of the crime and its staged appearance. Bob Schlosser, Kathy's father, once, you know, used to stand behind Jim. In fact, for decades, he stood behind Jim as like, no, you know, we can't believe that this happened to him. Yeah, you know, he's yeah, such a good course. guy. But he does now believe that Jim absolutely did it. He says that Jim didn't bring Sarah around much after a while, after all of this, and that that was probably an intentional thing to keep the witness away from the family, basically. At the sentencing, Bob said, quote, Jim, I hope you live to be 100 years old and enjoy your new home. Sarah, for the record, continues to stand by her father, insisting on his innocence. At sentencing, Sarah said the verdict took away from her her last surviving parent. Jim said, mm -mm. Jim stated that it remains difficult to talk about Kathy's death and revisit those horrible moments and that he did not murder Kathy, that he loved her. Jim, now 71, was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Bob, oh no, sorry. Jim, now 71, was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Hmm. Um, Bob Schlosser is hoping that Sarah will agree to move Kathy's remains to the Schlosser family plot. Uh, she is currently in the Krausnick family plot, but that seems unlikely. Jim, Sharon, Sarah, and their legal team are planning to appeal. Um, and they suggest that there was no, no way there was a fair trial in the case of a 40-year-old murder cold case. Mm. Um, so I have feelings. Yeah. Um, oof. Yeah, you know. When you're poor in trial 40 years later, 35, 40 years later, um, I don't know how the evidence is stacked against you. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why you're on trial now. Mm -hmm. um, the other guy who admitted to the to doing it, um, I think all the other stuff when he's like, said the wrong hair color, the wrong body type, mm -hmm. I think the only thing in that that gets him actually off you're not doing it, I think, is the fact that he's a serial rapist and not a serial murderer. Yeah. I think that's a, actually the most damning part of evidence of it all. Right. Because she would have been raped and killed, not just killed. Right. And there was no evidence of sexual assault. Yeah, I think that's really important to that. Um, and so people are like, why do you confess? We probably confess in order to hopefully get more stuff out mm -hmm. of it. And so I, I understand that. So I do disregard that other guy. I don't know who else it can be if it's not her husband. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's another one of those cases, like the last few weeks, I feel, mm -hmm. where there's, there's no other options. Yeah. Um, I think what troubles me, and to be fair, like, I don't know who else it could possibly have been either. But 
the, you know, there's like that aphorism, right? I don't know who actually said it, but like the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Mm. So the absence of evidence that someone else was in that house does not mean that there was never someone else in that house. Yeah. And so to rely on the absence of evidence to say, well, I had to be this guy feels like, I don't know if I could convict him if I were yeah, on the jury. I don't understand how he's convicted. I yeah. don't know what evidence they physically have. What they don't. They, they have no motivation. Right. They have no evidence. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and look, I think that um, obviously his daughter believes him and his daughter was three years old and any memory of that night is very much yeah. gone but um i don't know how you can convict with that little evidence yeah yeah i, I would know. have and i think that there's so much reasonable reasonable doubt right there's so much reasonable doubt right i don't know how you got a jury of 12 to convict agreed i, I mean that's the thing like i think again like logic says that you know I I'm yeah, not, I don't know who else it can be. I totally don't know who else it can be. It's not yeah. At the same time, I also but to convict yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond right? A reasonable On the strength doubt. of well, we can't find anybody else. Seems like seems like it. a bad move. Yeah, um, it just seems like really bad policing. It feels like bad ju- jury. Ju- I mean, the whole thing yeah. kind of reeks a little bit. And look, I don't know if he did or didn't do it. I really don't know. I mean, yes, all logic points to him. Mm-hmm. But all evidence does not. Right. And I think that, you know. There is a possibility he just has to, the shittiest freaking luck in the world. Yeah. And like someone murdered his wife and now he's going to go to jail until the day he dies yeah. for someone murdering his wife. Or he did it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But sort of a fascinating, I don't know, I found it a fascinating case. Um, but that's that's the story of what is known often as the Brighton Axe Murderer. The Brax murder. God. The Brax murder. Yeah. Oh, tough. Tough, tough, tough. I don't like it. Mm-mm. I don't like it. But stay tuned. There might be appeals. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's appeals. There should be appeals. Yeah. No, I think they're definitely planning. I, I don't. I wouldn't doubt that he gets out on appeal. Yeah. Again, it's really weird because I hate on the show to ever be like. To say this man's idiot. I, I don't know if he's innocent or not. Yeah. But I do know the little bit I do know about the law is that if there is reasonable doubt, you mm-hmm. can't convict with reasonable doubt. And there is reasonable doubt there. Right. There's no evidence. There's no evidence at all that yeah. says that he did it. And apparently the jury was torn at first. Like apparently yeah, it was of like six six and then eventually they worked their way to a conviction. But Oof. Well there you have it. There you have it. Well there's the ending of Murder Month. Murder here, Month. Here on the New York Mystery Machine. We'll try to never do that again to you guys. <laughs> no promises, but we'll try. There's just so many murders in the world. And, and like often have the most information on them. So, you know, we do what we do. But uh, next week, uh, next week's a different a different kind of case. And it's it's not. With a touch of murder. Oh, well, yeah. We, we, a little we, hint we'll, of it. We'll wink at murder. But uh, we're, not, we're not just on the mail. Yeah. Um, well, if you guys have any thoughts about any of this, you know what to do. You head on over to our socials. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Uh, at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. At NY Mysteries on Twitter. You can email us at NewYorkMysteryMachine at gmail.com. All of your theories we're going to talk through in just a few weeks. Next month. 
in June, our season finale, we're going to talk through all your theories, all of our theories. There's some information that Christine and I have been pulling out from some old episodes, things that we've we missed the first time around. Document documentaries have come out and mm. showed us more since. We're going to break all that stuff down for you. And the thing we love about most about this show and, and all these 20,000 listens that we've had so far <laughs> isn't just the fact that we do these things, but we kind of feel like we're doing it together, right? Yeah. So any theories you guys have, send us them. Please send us them. Uh, we're, we're putting them all together. And um, that's our season finale coming up in June. So do that. Um, if you like what you hear, you want to hear more of it, you head on over to iTunes, Apple Podcast. Drop us five stars. Drop us a review. Tell us what you like about the show. The reviews go such a long way. We love reading them. We love hearing from them. It really warms our hearts. So do that. You can also drop us five stars on Spotify uh, as well as Audible, uh, too. I think that's all the things. I think that's all the things. If you want to buy a cool t-shirt, head on over to yeah. com slash NYMysteryMachine. T-shirts are on sale as well. Um, well, we're back with an all-new episode next week. I've been Adam Ace. Christina Marinelli. And thanks for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Timmy Hall, but for ghosts. What was that saint's name again? Clavitica? Thecla. Thecla. Tammy Hall, but for Thecla. <laughs> Thecla, but for ghosts. <laughs> Tammy Hall, but for a Thecla ghosts. We'll see you next time.